How is everybody? Good, good. All of us who didn't have enough money to go on a fall break vacation, here we are. <laughs> awesome. So if you are new to the church, uh, we're in the book of Revelation. We haven't gotten that deep into it. So if you haven't been here, it's still a good time to kind of jump into this. And, and uh, a fascinating book, a lot to it. We're still kind of in the easy part of it, which is the first three chapters. And it starts in chapter four. It's not that bad either. When we get into chapter four, it's a beautiful chapter. And it's, it's really, really neat. Chapter five and beyond, we're going to have to really dig our heels in and do a lot of work, but it's going to be good. I think you'll be shocked at how much you can comprehend it and understand it and digest it. Uh, if you weren't here last week, did our baptism weekend. We had our worship night. We baptized around 100 people last week, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. And that's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 350 that we baptized for the year, which is pretty good. Yeah, that's not too shabby. Another really cool thing is I think we're right. We might have already crossed this threshold. I'm not sure yet, but we're right around $40,000 that we've raised for Possibility Place. Now, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Here's something you can do, though. I think they have three bricks left that you can purchase back there, and they're 100 bucks. So if you can purchase those, they will have reached. They had $10,000 worth of bricks to sell. If you can buy those last three, there's three or four, that'd be awesome at the end of the service. Also, uh, we're selling the Worship Night t-shirts. And so if you go out there and buy one of those, all the money from that, it doesn't stay in here. It goes right to Possibility Place. So go out there and buy the shirts. They're really good looking shirts. They got a couple of different colors if they haven't sold out of those. But um, any of the merchandise stuff you buy out there, it all goes towards Possibility Place. So yeah, make sure you go out there and do that. We are back in the book of Revelation. Now, if you haven't been here, we're only in chapter three, so you haven't missed that much. And the first three chapters of Revelation are pretty digestible. They're pretty simple pretty straightforward. There's not a ton of symbolism. There's not a ton of ambiguity. It's, it's pretty easy to, to comprehend. That's why a lot of churches will teach the first three chapters, but beyond that, um, a lot of churches don't really go into it. So in a couple of weeks, we'll be doing, um, we'll get into the, the, the very dense, a little bit more complicated side of Revelation, but like I say every week, you'll be okay. You'll be shocked at how well you're able to comprehend it and work through it it's going to be a tremendous amount of fun. It's, it's a lot of fun to get into the, the middle part of Revelation. If you haven't been here, though, the first two chapters, um, a guy named John, he's the one that, that recorded the Revelation. There's multiple Revelations within this book, but the whole thing is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. The first part of the book of Revelation is John is told by Jesus himself to write seven letters to seven churches. Now, in chapter two, we covered four of those already. And then in chapter three, we're gonna cover the last three of these seven churches. Now, these churches had specific issues that they were going for that these letters were intended to address, but all of the letters combined are a pretty good instruction manual for the modern day church, for all Christians. So there's so many practical things we can pull out of the first three chapters of Revelation and we hope to continue to do that today. So two weeks ago, we kind of uh, uh, talked about evaluating Christianity, evaluating us, the church, and we talked about the rewards of pushing through, of persevering. If we will just hold on and keep pushing forward, there's these, there's these rewards, both here and for eternity. Now, here's what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to ask ourselves, what stops us from being honest about who and what we are. Sometimes we struggle with honesty in Christianity. 
I don't think it's because we're all liars, but I think we've kind of trained ourselves as Christians to kind of put on this facade or this mask, right? That's why, you know, we dress up on the weekends, not at this church, obviously, but why a lot of people dress up on the weekends and try to put on their game face and come in and I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, right? And we're not okay. Most of us have a lot of issues that we're dealing with. And what stops us from being honest about that? So we'll talk about that a little bit today, okay? So another thing, let me preface this lesson today. Um, I love the United States. I'm not going to get political or anything. Don't worry, right? Don't, don't get up and leave yet. Uh, but you're going to see a lot of the church in the United States shown in chapter 3. We're going to read some stuff today, and you're like, wow, that sounds really familiar. Sounds a lot like us. And you're going to see a lot of that today. And I don't mean that to, to beat up on us. We live in the most wonderful nation on planet Earth. Um, but maybe we've taken it for granted, and maybe Christianity isn't what it should be because of how well we have it in the United States, and that'll come up a little bit today. Anyways, you should have a notes handout in front of you. Everything that's going to be on the screens is in that notes handout. If you have a smartphone, if you download the Experience Community app, everything is on there. Click on service and then sermon notes. It has the scripture and it has the notes combined. If you have a Bible, we are in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're in the third chapter. More than likely, your Bible is all written in red in this chapter because it is all directly from the mouth of God. It is straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ, which is kind of neat, right? A little unique. So I'm going to pray. We'll dive into this, and uh, I think you'll enjoy this chapter, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for the sunshine this weekend. Lord, thank you, God, for the beautiful weather we've had. Lord, thank you for the trees changing colors and just the wonderful things that are happening this time of year, God. Lord, we pray that you keep your hand on us today, God. Just like your word says, give us ears to listen to you today. Give us eyes to see what you're doing, Lord. Give us humility today. Humble us, Lord, and let us be receptive. God, we pray that you bless every single church in our city, God. They're all wonderful churches, Lord. Bless them. Bless the pastors and the leadership, God. Bless Possibility Place that we're raising money for this weekend. Bless all the nonprofits in our community. And we pray, God, that what we're doing right now, this study and this talking about your word, we pray that, God, it is, it is uh, showing you honor, Lord, that we're respecting you the way we should, God. And we pray, Lord, that we grow because of it. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter three. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to go back and break it down. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase their name from the book of life, but will acknowledge their name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There's a little bit of symbolism here, but it was easily clarified. 
The seven spirits of God comes from Isaiah chapter 11, which are these seven attributes of God. We talked about that, right? So a little bit of explanation there. The seven stars, Jesus clarified that and made it clear in chapter chapter two, or it might've been chapter one, I can't remember, but these seven, it was chapter one, that these seven stars are the churches that these letters are going out to. Now, something else I wanna throw back in here, because we're gonna, we're gonna see this number a lot in the book of Revelation, is the number seven. The number seven is typically symbolic of perfection or completion or balance. It's a balanced number. So when you see the number seven in Revelation, that's typically what it symbolizes, okay? Now, this church has nothing good said about it. Jesus gets right to the criticism because he doesn't have any compliments for them. And the main accusation against this church in Sardis is that their reputation is faulty. They have tricked everyone. They have led everyone to believe that they are healthy, but they're not healthy, they're actually dead. Basically, it was a church full of nominal Christians. They all called themselves Christians, but they didn't really act like Christians. Again, look at what we've done, especially in the southeastern part of the country with Christianity. We build these huge, beautiful, pretty buildings and we all dress up and we have the bumper stickers and we all eat lunch at Chick-fil-A and like we put on this huge persona, right? That we've got it all together. But when you cut through that, you find out that most of us are not living the way we should. You know what's interesting about the Southeast? There's a website, don't go to this, called pornhub.com. It's the biggest pornography site in the world. They did a study of what parts of the United States watch the most amount of porn. It's the Southeast. Tennessee is number four out of all 50 states. The Bible Belt watches more porn than anyone else in the United States. Fascinating. We have this facade of looking like we're alive and vibrant, but when you cut through the crap, it looks like we're dead. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're, my, you're Christians just by name only. So God said, wake up. Be alert, strengthen what little passion you have left. He says, your works aren't complete yet. I was talking to someone in this church just a couple of weeks ago, right after vision service. And I had complained at vision service that the majority of our volunteers at this church are under the age of 25. And do you know what this person said to me? Well, Corey, a lot of us have already done our time. Oh, really? If you still have breath in your lungs and blood in your veins, God's not done with you yet. It's the only reason why you're still alive in here is God has something for you to do. This mentality of, well, I've already put my time in. No, that's not it. We keep running until the race is done. And so Jesus said, if you have that mentality, right, that you've already done everything you need to do, you're not done yet. Jesus says, repent for that. Here are the two greatest weapons against the church right now, apathy and entitlement, that we somehow deserve something, we deserve nothing, and we have become extremely apathetic. And Jesus says, you need to wake up and realize that there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of people that don't know God. There's still a lot of people who are starving on the streets. There's still homeless children in your community. There's still women that don't have a home to live in. There's still a lot that needs to take place. We're not done yet. So he says, wake up. Here's the fascinating thing about this church in Sardis is they weren't even under persecution. If you were with us last week or two weeks ago, the church in Smyrna 
God only had good things to say about, not the one down, the, it's not, I'm not talking about like life point or anything. I'm just, not a church down the street in Smyrna, but God had nothing bad to say about the church in Smyrna and they were heavily persecuted, but the church that had it easy, God had nothing good to say about them. Isn't it fascinating? The United States, Christianity in the United States is dipping at record paces, but in places like China, and Russia and North Africa and in other places in Asia where it's illegal and they're persecuted, Christianity is growing at record numbers. So in places where it's being persecuted, the church is healthy. In places like the United States, it's falling apart. And this demands change. God threatens to come like a thief. This isn't referring to him coming back the second time. It's referring to the blessings, that I'm gonna take away the blessings that you have if you don't wake up and act spiritually the way you should. So here's the thing that we kind of get from this first church. We need to learn that our faith is not just a weekend thing. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. You coming to church on Sunday mornings does not make you a Christian. It is living like Christ on I-24 during the weekday, right? <laughs> oh, the conviction in the room, you can feel it. I lose my, my spirit when I go down 24 in the middle of the day, right? If I have like a hospital visit in Vanderbilt, I'm like tight, like white knuckling the steering wheel. It's very hard to be a Christian on I-24. It's very hard to be a Christian in the day-to-day -day grind, but that's what we're called to do. We think worship is just singing along with Kyle and the band. That's not only worship. Worship is your workplace. Worship is how you talk to people. Worship is your ethic when no one's around. Worship is how you live day to day. That's what God wants out of us. Not just putting on the facade of church, but living like Christ. We're not to be perfect, but we're always to be on the clock. We cannot clock out of our Christianity. We are always following Jesus, right? That's what we're supposed to do. That's rocky. I just want you guys to know that. It's not an actual picture of the Church of Philadelphia. Write to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia. <laughs> Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So this reference 
to God being the one who has the key of David. This is actually back in the book of Isaiah as well, chapter 22, verse 22. It relates to Jesus telling the church at Philadelphia that God is the God that opens and shuts doors. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard this verbiage, right? God just opened the doors that need to be opened, shut the doors that need to be closed. We use that verbiage a lot, and a lot of us don't really know where that comes from. It comes from Revelation 3 and from Isaiah 22. Now, the church in Philadelphia was a small church. They weren't a big church. They weren't a mega church. And so they didn't have a lot of influence in their city. You know, a lot of churches today, I mean, like for us, when we do our worship night on the square, the mayor opens us up and they shut down the square. We have some influence in the city. You can do stuff at MTSU and things like that. This church was a small congregation. They didn't have influence. But Jesus said, that's okay. You have me. I will open the doors that need to be open and I will close the doors that need to be closed. So any obstacle that was in their way, because they were close to Jesus, Jesus could open that door. He could move those mountains, if you will. So Jesus gives them approval right off the bat because there is no criticism. Jesus assures them that he has placed a door in front of them that no one can close. Now, some people believe this is referring to the good things that they will do, opportunities in the city. That's a possibility, that's, but that's probably not what he was referring to. The open door that he was referring to was salvation. No matter how much this church was persecuted or people treated them poorly or whatever came against them, no one could take their salvation. No one could shut that door. Now, it's odd. The church we just covered had no compliment, yet they had it easy. This church was heavily persecuted and there's no criticism against them. The criticism against, or I'm sorry, the, the persecution against Philadelphia was from the synagogue of Satan. Now, again, I said this a couple of weeks ago. This is not a, a satanic church. This was the Jewish synagogue and they were Jews by blood, but they weren't acting like Jews. Jesus was saying, you think you're Jews, but you're not acting like my people. In fact, you're persecuting my people. So Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. And again, similar to the church of Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia has nothing bad to be said about them, yet they suffer heavy persecution. Here's something we learn from this. That clown at two o'clock in the mornings that says, put your hand on the screen and send me 1995, right? Those guys, those prosperity preachers who tell you, if you just love Jesus, you're always gonna be great, like happy and wealthy and healthy and all that stuff if you just love Jesus. That is not biblical. That is not real. Now, I don't mean to sound like a downer. If someone says that loving Jesus lets you escape persecution, A, that's not biblical, and then B, I would say loving Jesus will bring you into persecution. When Jesus said you'll be hated for my name's sake, that means that there will come a time, guys, where people will vehemently hate you because you call yourself a Christian. And so we see the two churches that received extreme approval were both heavily persecuted. So just because we have an allegiance to Jesus does not escape us from hard times. In fact, I would say it leads us into hard times. So because of this church's endurance, Jesus promises them three things. He said, I'm gonna open a door that no one can close, no one can shut. He says, your enemies are gonna bow down at your feet and you will escape the hour of testing. Now we already established the door represents salvation. 
The people bowing down at your feet probably refers to Philippians chapter two when it says that every knee will bow in front of God. And if we're on the side of God, we will see people bowing down in front of us, that every knee will bow. Now, the third part of this, this hour of testing, this is where we get kind of our first foreshadowing of the main chunk of Revelation. This hour of testing is referring to the great tribulation. The great tribulation is started by Jesus. It is initiated by God. And Jesus promises the church of Philadelphia that they will not suffer during this time. Now, this is where people start to disagree in the book of Revelation. Some people will read this and they'll say, well, look, Corey, God said he's gonna spare the Christians from this time of persecution. That means we're going to be raptured out. That we're gonna be zapped out of here and nothing bad is going to happen to us. Other people argue and say, no, it doesn't mean we're gonna be zapped out, but it means we will go through the tribulation, but we will not suffer God's wrath because Christians don't suffer God's anger, his wrath. So this is where I hope we can agree to disagree. I hope we can do that. So the same guy that wrote the book of Revelation wrote another book of the Bible called the Gospel of John. His name was John. And John said in chapter 17, verse 15, he was quoting Jesus. Jesus said this about his followers. He said, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Here's the thing. I believe during the great tribulation, a lot of people are gonna come into a relationship with Jesus during that time. This seven year span that we're gonna talk about later, the last seven years of human existence, I believe a lot of people are gonna to come to know Jesus. How are they gonna to come to know Jesus if there's no Christians left on earth? Someone's gonna to have to tell them about them. So I think God's gonna have us here, but he's gonna protect us from the evil one. So one perspective of Revelation 3.10 is that Christians will go through the seven years of tribulation, but at the end of that is God's wrath and we will not be around for that. What this theory is called and I'll just let the cat out of the bag, that's what I believe. This theory is called the post-tribulation, which means we go through the whole seven years, but we are not here for God's wrath. So post-tribulation, pre-wrath. We will get into that later. Don't even worry about that right now. We can argue and lose friendships over that later in the book of Revelation, okay? But not today. So if the Philadelphia church will stay strong Jesus says, if you will just hold on, no one will be able to take your crown. He also says that I will make you a pillar in heaven. That doesn't mean literally, like we're gonna be standing there holding up walls for eternity, right? That's not what he, that's not what he meant. He meant that you're gonna be secure. You're not gonna go anywhere. You're gonna be with God forever. You're gonna have security. You're gonna have permanency. We also see another bit of, of foreshadowing here. Jesus says that God will send down a new city with his name on it. So we get a foreshadowing of the very end of the entire Bible when heaven comes down, rests on a new earth. But again, we'll talk about that in detail later, months from now. Now, the last church, and most of you guys are probably a little bit familiar with this one. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold 
nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit on my throne, just as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So this church, probably the most famous church in Revelation. This church is reminded that God is the true witness. The reason why they are reminded that God is the true witness is this is a church that struggled with being trustworthy. Their witness was not good. So one of the most famous and probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the book of Revelation is right from this part about the church of Laodicea. When it talks about this church not being hot or cold, but lukewarm. I'll explain that in a second. So this church also receives no compliment. There is nothing good said about this church. Only criticism about it being lukewarm and not hot or cold. Now here's where people are confused on this. I've heard a gazillion preachers preach on this passage before. God would rather let you just be a cold sinner than, than you be a lukewarm Christian. You ever heard that, right? I'd, God just wants you to be either just cold as ice. That's not what God was referring to. God does not want you to be a cold as ice sinner. That's not what he wants you to be. The temperature here is not referring to the state of their faith. This super hot, on fire Christian or the super cold, not Christian at all, they're a sinner. It's referring to the location of the church of Laodicea. Laodicea fell between two different cities, a city called Aeropolis and a city called Colossae. And it fell right in the middle. Colossae was known for freezing cold, fresh springs. The other city, Aeropolis, was known for very medicinal hot springs. So the cold was fresh, pure water that you could drink straight from the spring. The other one was medicinal hot springs. So Jesus was saying you should either be this fresh water or you should be this medicinal hot water, but in the middle is terrible. To help us understand this, is coffee, right? God's greatest gift to us. <laughs> and God says, it's kind of like coffee, right? We either like coffee super hot in the winter, right? Super hot, or in the summer, we like it ice cold. But if it's in the middle, unless you're just one of those freak weirdos that likes room temperature coffee, if it's in the middle, <laughs> we spit it out. It's terrible, it's disgusting. So the reference Jesus is making to temperature is about different ways to minister to people. And being in the middle, being lukewarm, is, is signifying that they're doing nothing. You're not doing it this way. You're not doing it this way. You're just not doing anything. You're apathetic. You're lazy. You're lukewarm. 
So here's what we learn from Revelation 3 about Laodicea. There is no neutral ground with Jesus. You're either in or you're out. There's no like, eh, you know, we're cool on the weekends, but I don't really talk to him any other time. That's not being a follower of Jesus. Now I take that straight from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus says, anyone who's not with me is against me. There's only two choices there. You're either with Christ or you're not with Christ. And then he says, either people work with me or they don't work with me. They either gather with me or they run away, they scatter. There is no neutral. There is no pause button. We're either gravitating towards God or we are digressing away from God. There is no place in between. This is what Jesus says, though, about the in-between. Look at how Jesus talks. Jesus literally says, if you're neutral, if you're apathetic, if you're just riding the fence, Jesus says, you make me want to throw up. That's what he says. That is extreme language. This source of apathy that people were having in Laodicea, and it's the source of apathy that we have here in the United States, is self-righteousness. I'm okay, right? There's good inside me, I'll just tap into me and everything will be fine. The Laodicean said, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I have everything I need, I need nothing. And Jesus stepped back and said, no, you don't. You're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Look at us. We look at the United States and we have everything we need. So we have created this lie. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But we have been sold this lie in the United States to just follow our hearts, right? If anyone tells you to follow your heart, they're an idiot. Walk away from them because they have no wisdom. If you follow your heart, you're going to get into an extramarital affair. If you follow your heart, you're going to get in so much debt, you will never get out of it. If you follow your heart, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to do something insane. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, don't follow your heart. It's the most deceptive part about you. It will lie to you. You will be deceived if you follow your emotions all the time in your heart. Follow the Holy Spirit that should be residing in your heart. That's where wisdom comes from, is following God. And so the point when they're saying, I'm rich, that's not a money thing. Oh, those rich people, right? That's not what that's talking to. It's a self-sufficiency thing. It's a humility thing. These people were not humble. All of us can fall into this self-righteous mentality. I'll just dig deep inside. If you dig deep inside, you're gonna find some bad stuff in there. You know why? Because there is nothing good about you apart from Jesus Christ. And we need to be humble enough to say, man, if you get into the depths of Corey Trimble, you don't wanna see those corners. There's ugliness in there. Unless I let the Holy Spirit come into my heart and shine a light on that. I don't trust Corey. I trust the Holy Spirit inside of Corey. That's what I trust. Don't trust your heart. Every time we're watching Disney movies at my house and some song comes on, oh, trust your heart. I look at my girls and I'm like, you know that's wrong? And they're like, yes, dad. I mean, because I say it all the time. Don't trust your heart. Trust the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so the advice, I don't know if that's a real Disney song. I just made that up. But <laughs> the advice that Jesus gives the Laodiceans was to buy gold refined through a fire. Here's what the Laodiceans were doing. They were putting all of their hope in material things houses, cars. They, were, they didn't have cars back then, but houses, cars. 
into things that they thought were important. We find our identity in so many things. We find it in our work. We find it in our gender, in our sexuality. We find it in our success. We find it in our money and in our bank account. We find it in all these things. And the problem with that, not that there's a problem with all of those things necessarily, but the problem with everything apart from Jesus Christ is they all come to an end. So we've invested, Jesus is referring to fool's gold, You've invested in gold that if you put it into the fires of life, it's going to melt and get destroyed. So real gold does the exact opposite. When you put real gold into a fire, look at this. The impurities come to the surface. They can be scraped away and you're left with solid gold. So Jesus says, invest in something that is eternal. Invest in something that when the trials of life come... When your marriage is falling apart or your, your finances are falling apart or you're struggling with depression, that car or that house or whatever is not going to fill the void. So Jesus says, invest in the thing that will last. He also says, cover up your shameful nakedness, which means stop doing things that are so unrighteous and so sinful. Be modest, be humble, take care of your soul. Then the last thing he says, is the, the, the city of Laodicea was globally famous for an eye ointment. This was a city that was known, if it was modern day, they would have been known for the greatest optometry school in the world. They had this eye salve that was, that was, was worldwide famous that people would put on their eyes and it would help their eyes. And Jesus pointed out the irony of that. You Christians who live in a city that's known for eye health and you can't see. You can't see spiritually. So Jesus said, you need another kind of ointment. You need the Holy Spirit and you need it to open up your spiritual eyes so you can really see. Now, here's kind of the, the, the lining, right? The, here, here's kind of the, the beautiful part of this. Jesus has been brutal. It's pretty brutal when God looks at you and says, you kind of make me want to throw up, right? That's pretty brutal. But at the end of his criticism, look what Jesus says. The church that got the harshest criticism also gets the most tender, loving words. Look at what he says. He says, as many as you that I love. He goes, that's why I rebuke you. That's why I discipline you, because I love you. So we sometimes mistake discipline and correction for punishment. God, why are you punishing me? And God's looking down saying, I'm not trying to punish you. I'm trying to get your attention, because I love you. You're driving off a cliff, and Jesus is trying to grab the steering wheel from you. He's trying to humble us. He's trying to get us to look up to him and say, okay, I'm out of answers. What do I do now? And so a good father, a good dad, disciplines his children, not because he hates his children, but because he wants to steer his children in a healthy direction. Those of you in this room who've grown up and now have your own children, you look back at when your parents disciplined you and you thank them for that discipline. Thank God my mother put me in my place. Thank God I was grounded and spanked sometimes, right? Thank God I had to go through that. It's what made me into the, the better person that I've become. A good parent knows what's best for us. That's why God disciplines his children. He also says, be zealous, repent. He simply advises them, turn from this self-righteousness. Don't think that it's all you. Stop being so lazy in your faith and turn towards him. And he says, look, I'm knocking. I stand at the door, I'm knocking. I'm beating your door down. And Jesus says, if you'll just open up the door, we'll hang out. 
Look at that. God is saying, if you'll just let me in, I'll spend time with you. I'll be with you. And so if we will humble ourselves and rely on him for what we truly need. Look at the last thing he says. You can even sit on my throne. When we get into chapter four, that's gonna be a big deal. You're gonna see, wow, that's a big deal that he's inviting us. And I don't know if that literally means that we're all gonna be able to sit on this big throne, but what he's saying is you're gonna inherit this kingdom with me. You're gonna be as close to me as possible. Think if you were a child of the Queen of England, right? And your mom invites you to sit on her lap on the throne. That's what God's saying. You can sit up here with me. I invite you to be as close to me as possible, right? So here's the thing. This is gonna sound funny, but think about it for a second. Our biggest obstacles in life will be the things that bring us temporary comfort. Our biggest obstacle from being what God wants us to be are the things that we find this temporary comfort in. Sex, money, power, Facebook, TV, playing video games so you can not think about reality. All these things that bring us this temporary comfort are gonna be the things that keep us from being who we truly wanna be. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with some of those things but we have found those things to be our source of strength and they're fleeting. They just go away. So here's the thing, guys. If you wanna know the secret to life, if you wanna know the key to everything, if you wanna know the linchpin that, that answers every single question, it is humility. It's being humble. It is coming to a place to where we have, we have nothing to lose. We get on our knees and we look up and we're just like, God, I don't have anything else. I need you. It is that place of humility. That is the linchpin to everything. If your life is falling apart right now, if you've made all the mistakes in the world, if you have struggled, if you just can't figure out how to get from point A to point B, humility is the answer. What I mean by that is you have to get to a point to where you know that you just can't fix it and you have to hit your knees, you may have to lay face down on the carpet and say, God, I am absolutely desperately needing you right now. And if we will find a place of humility, God will give us the answers and he will take us where we need to go. However it shakes down, it will work out to your benefit in God's glory if we will just be humble. Humility or a lack thereof is the one thing that keeps God from working in our life. It's pride and arrogance. As God bangs on our door, it is pride and arrogance that keeps us from opening it up. Humility is the linchpin. If you get nothing else from today, I hope you understand that humility is the linchpin. Here's where the rubber meets the road though, guys. Let me ask you this, are we honest people? Is what you see what you get? Is that how we are? Have Christians become the best mask wearers. Do you know where we get the word hypocrite? From Hippocrates. It was from plays that they would put on masks and pretend to be people that they weren't. Sounds like the church, right? We all show up on the weekends. Again, not at this one, but we all show up on the weekends. We're dressed to the nines. We pull up, right? Just wash the car. Show up to this huge building that's in debt up to its ears. We pull up, we walk in, we smile, you okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. We're all pretty, we're all clean, we live in the freest country in the world. 
And then we go right back out to the parking lot, argue with our wife on our way home to where we ignore our kids because the football game's on. We go back to work and act like jerks to everybody. We're unethical. We put on the mask and we're not honest about it. We struggle with depression. We struggle with sexual addiction. We struggle with pornography. It's statistically shown. We have all these things. Why in the heck can we not just be honest about it? Last December, I got up on this stage right here and I told this church, because you guys come in my office and tell me all kinds of bad stuff, so I just felt like I owed it to you. I got up here and I said, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. I don't really like you guys anymore. I don't like what I do. I, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm worn out. I'm tired. And I didn't say that for empathy or for you guys to like send me emails. Or anything. I mean, I appreciate that. But I just wanted to be honest with you. I want you to know that I'm a human like you and that I have struggles just like you. This last Thursday, I told a bunch of college students about all the sexual struggles I'd had in the past and all the awful things I had done wrong because I want you, you're my brother, you're my sister. The Bible says to confess our faults. Here we are. Let's, let's just be honest. God knows anyways. Do you know what the, the, the first email I got after the weekend where I was just honest with you guys in December? You know the first email I got? There was a lady who had visited our church. She was church stopping, right? We treat church like we treat fine wine. No, I don't know. I don't know if I want this one, right? It's not cold enough. It's not hot enough. This woman sends me an email. You must be a terrible pastor that you would get up in front of your congregation and instead of lifting them up, share your problems with them, burden them further with how you feel. And I just replied, I was nice because I'm a nice guy. I said, ma'am, this probably isn't the best church for you because we're just very honest here. And then she sent an immediate response. How dare you tell me it's not the right church? And I just said, I dare because I started the church. <laughs> and <laughs> needless to say, we have not crossed paths. <laughs> but what I wanted to say was, would you rather go to a church where a guy puts on a $3,000 suit, but he's cheating on his wife? Would you rather walk into a building that's up to its eyeballs in debt so it can't help the community, but it's got a really pretty steeple? Would you rather want, your, would you rather want a bunch of bullcrap or do you want the truth? Why can't we just be honest with each other? If you're struggling, Galatians chapter six says, bear each other's burdens and that fulfills the law of Christ. The Bible says to confess your faults one to another that we're to be honest with each other. And it's only when we're honest, it's only when we're straightforward that we can move forward. Take off the mask. If there's any place where you can be yourself, it should be in this room. Be honest with each other. What stops us from that? And so we have to ask, are we Christians in name only? Are we Christians just because we say we are? And if so, what are we doing to change that? Guys, that bumper sticker's not gonna get you to heaven. Your tattoo's not gonna get you to heaven. Your shirt's not gonna get you to heaven. Just walking around telling everyone that you're a Christian is not gonna get you to heaven. 68% of the United States says that they're a Christian, yet $13 billion a year is spent in the porn industry from Christians. Something's wrong. Look, two of the three churches that we talked about today, two of the three, all three of them claim to be Christians, but two of the three of them, Jesus didn't have one good word to say about them. How many churches in the United States say, we are a church, we are Christians, 
And if Jesus were to really open up the hood on us, he'd say, I can't find an engine in there, right? I can't find anything good to say about you. I don't want to be that, guys. That's not where I want to be. So the last statement or question is this. Do our actions speak louder than our labels? We love labels in our culture. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm gay. I'm straight. I'm white. I'm black. I'm American. I'm Mexican-American. I'm African-American. I'm all, we love labels. Guys, I could care less about your labels. I care about your actions. Jesus could care less about your labels. That's why the Bible says there is no free or slave. There is no Greek or Jew. There is no male or female. We're all one under Christ Jesus. That's the only label that I care about. But I want your actions to support the label. You can have Christ follower on the back of your $50,000 car all day long. But if you're treating people like garbage on the highway, you're not acting like Jesus. That label means nothing. We're so worried about labels. Why don't you just worry about how you live? Why don't you worry about how you speak to people? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you should be praying. That means you should be reading the word. That means that church should be a priority. That means that how you talk to people matters. How you love people matters. What do you mean, Corey? God says that I will know that you're a follower of mine by how you treat each other. It means we need to be careful what we post online. We need to be careful how we treat our waitress and our coworker. We need to be careful how we raise our children and treat our spouse. I don't care about your labels. God doesn't care about your labels. He cares about your character. He cares about your actions. He cares what goes on at two o'clock in the morning when no one sees you. He cares about how you file your taxes when no one's around, right? Even if you can get away with it. He cares about where your money goes. He cares about where your time goes. He cares about your family. And he cares about your marriage. He cares about your actions. We may be able to pull the wool over everyone's eyes and lead everyone to believe that we are just squeaky clean, fantastic followers of Jesus, but God sees our heart. Isaiah said his people's mouths are close to him, but their hearts are far away. Do our actions speak louder than our labels? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, I want to end on a, on a positive note, not a negative note. If you are in this room and you have called yourself a Christian, but you have not lived a life that honors Christ, I'm not even implying that you're cheating on your husband or that you're doing something awful, but maybe you don't pray. Maybe you don't read. Maybe you don't talk to God. Maybe you have a horrible attitude or hatred in your heart. Listen. Every single church that we've covered, all seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation, do you know what God's advice? God didn't cut any of them off. You know what he said to all of them? Just repent. If they're already doing the right thing, he just said, just keep holding on. So here's the beauty if you're in this room today. If you have not been what you're supposed to be, all you have to do is humble yourself. Be humble and say, God, I need you. God, I have messed up. Please forgive me. And do you know what God does? 
the Old Testament says that when we repent, he throws our sin into the deep sea. <laughs> there are parts of the ocean that are so deep that humanity has never been there. And God metaphorically says, that's where I put your sin. No one's ever gonna see it again. It's blotted out. You're pure, you're good. If we will be humble and if we will repent today, God will change our trajectory. God will give us a fresh start. So there's communion all the way around you. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, there's communion. Represents the body and blood of Jesus. Everyone in this room who calls himself a Christian, you are welcome to take that. All you have to do, though, is ask Christ to forgive your sins. If you are in this room and either you're not a Christian or you struggle with your faith, you're either not a Christian, you struggle with your faith, or maybe you just have some questions. Greg is up here to my right, your left. Glasses on. Right over here, to my right, your left. If you have any questions, please come up here and ask Greg. He's a super nice guy. He's not gonna browbeat you. He's not gonna, he, he's a knowledgeable guy. Please come up and talk to him and let him answer some questions for you. There's also men and women up here to pray for you. If you need prayer for anything. Guys, if you just wanna come up and confess your sins to someone, and I don't mean that hokey or weird, but if you wanna come up here, these men and women who've been up here, they have also sinned. <laughs> They've done bad things themselves. And so if you just want someone to come up and say, I've done this, they'll say, okay, all right, let's pray together. Let's encourage each other. Let's help each other. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I thank you so much for every man and woman in this room. I pray that something today just got our attention, God, that it humbles us, Lord, and that it brings us to you God, if we will just be humble and ask for your help, we will be okay. Even if we're persecuted to the point of death, we will be okay. Lord, let us be humble. Let us be repentant. Let us be dependent on you. Let us be honest with ourselves and honest with each other. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. We pray all of this in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. I love you guys so much. Thank you.